Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to CoronaPod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to CoronaPod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week is CoronaPod favourite Heidi Ledford. Heidi, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. So this is your first CoronaPod of the year, our second overall. And we're going to talk about something which has always been somewhat of a footnote in other discussions, which is T-cells. So, so many times we've talked about antibodies, we've talked about vaccines, and we've said, oh, we should also add there's T-cells, which is this other part of the immune system. And recently you've written a story all about T-cells, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to really dig into what we mean when we sort of add that caveat. Also, T-cells. You know, the first thing I would say is that you are totally not alone in treating them as a footnote. <laughs> I would say not only do you know do we in the media tend to do that, but also a, quite a few researchers. When I reported the recent story about it, there were a few sort of T-cell specialists who seemed, you know, really quite frustrated by that, actually. But T-cells, so, you know, you have antibodies that we talk about a lot. And antibodies, particularly the neutralizing antibodies, they can bind to a viral protein directly and then disable it. And, and in so doing, they've, they've disrupted the viral sort of cycle. It's no longer able to infect or cells or replicate as well as it could before. T cells work a little differently. So there are lots of different kinds and they have lots of different functions. But when we talk about viral infections, a lot of times we think about a specific class of T cells that are called cytotoxic T cells or sometimes killer T cells, which is a bit more romantic than cytotoxic. And what they do is they sort of patrol through the body and they look for infected cells. And when they find an infected cell, they mark it then for destruction. So they can be very important in limiting the scope of an infection. And they're particularly important in defending against things like severe disease and death from an infection. But they're harder to measure than antibodies. And so they don't, they haven't been studied as much. And also, you know, when you're in a pandemic, I mean, you really do want antibody protection because the antibodies can, can stop the infection a bit earlier. And a lot of times, if you can stop an infection earlier, you reduce the chance of spreading it. So when you're thinking about a population and wanting to limit the scope of a pandemic, you do tend to think about antibodies. You'd like to have antibodies. But I think the point is often that if you don't have that antibody protection, it doesn't mean you're totally defenseless out there. Right. Yeah. So T cells attack cells that have been infected in our body, whereas antibodies can attack the virus that infects the cells in the first place directly. I have to say, as a very much not an immunologist, I always think of antibodies as like the first line of defense. And then we have T cells as kind of like 
the cavalry that come in sort of slightly secondarily. And that's what very much kind of comes across in the story you've recently written is that T-cells potentially are great for reducing the severity of the illness. They're not great for stopping you getting infected in the first place. But given that we talk so much about the role of vaccines, for example, in reducing severity of illness... It raises the question of to what extent is that effect down to T-cells versus antibodies, which is what we spend most of our time talking about. Do we know the answer to that question? I don't think we really do. And it gets back again to the issue that T-cells are harder to study. Antibodies, you can measure levels of specific antibodies in a simple blood sample. It's quite easy to collect that blood sample. It's quite easy to analyze it. It's very standardized from lab to lab. T-cells, it's sort of the opposite. You've got to assay living cells. You've got to collect the blood in a certain way. You've got to treat it a certain way. The assays that people do can vary quite widely from lab to lab. It's harder to do. And so as a result, the technology is a little further behind. So what that means is that when they do this massive trial, let's say, to test a vaccine, and they're doing it in hundreds of different sites, to ask them to collect the samples to analyze T-cell responses is, is too much for, for some of these sites. They may not have the manpower, the technology, the lab, you know, that they need to do it. So what happened is that, you know, we had these amazing vaccine trials that got off the ground really quickly very large trials, but they couldn't necessarily take the samples that they needed to really link, I guess, a T-cell response to a degree of protection. They did do that with antibody responses because that's much simpler to collect those samples and to analyze them. So we do have an idea that, oh, if you have this level of antibody response, you have this level of protection against, say, infection. But we don't have a good way of saying, okay, if your T-cells are responding, you know, to this degree, then you are you know, that degree protected from severe disease. We don't we don't really have those hard numbers yet. Yeah, so what we end up with is this glut of information about antibodies, but we have this real, real dearth of information about T-cells. And yet recently we found ourselves in a situation where the Omicron wave has happened and we've got a lot of evidence that shows that Omicron can evade neutralising antibodies. But we do see that Omicron seems to have a lot less severity. We've talked a lot before about how severity is actually quite a hard thing to measure, but we don't see as many people going into hospital with Omicron. And one potential reason is that T-cells are not being evaded in the same way that antibodies might be. And this, I suppose, is where we start to get some inklings about what role T-cells might be playing. It's really interesting, too, because for a neutralizing antibody to do its thing, it has to bind to a spot on the spike protein, let's say, but it has to bind to a specific spot there that's really going to interfere with the function of that protein. So that can kind of limit the areas where it can recognize that protein. But T cells, they don't, they don't have that requirement. If a virus infects a cell and starts making its nasty little viral proteins, the cell is going to carve up some of those proteins. It's going to present little fragments on the surface of the cell. T cell comes cruising by, recognizes those fragments and says, okay, we need to nuke the cell. Those fragments don't have to be limited to some functional region of the spike protein. It could be, you know, different regions all up and down the protein. So the T-cell system is a bit more resilient to the variants that come out. It's more resilient to mutations because it can recognize so many different regions along that protein. And by and large, so far, even with Omicron, even with, what was it, 34, I think, different mutations in the spike protein, T-cell responses would have been preserved. And when you say preserved, are we talking deadened here or are we talking as well as they were working before? You know, you can look at the sequences, for example, of what the T-cells recognize generally along spike and what was mutated in Omicron. And there was something on the order of maybe 25% or so of those sequences that are recognized by T-cells had a mutation in them. Not all of those are even going to affect, you know, T-cell recognition, but you know, those are ones that were potentially affected. But the people I spoke to said, by and large, they didn't expect that to really have a measurable effect on T-cell protection. T-cells are also living cells. They can expand. The ones that do recognize 
Omicron and, and are activated may then expand and replicate so that you have more of them out there. So it's not just a linear sort of, oh, you know, 20% of them may not work anymore. Therefore, our response is 20% less. It's going to be more complex than that. Okay, so if we think about the protection that people out there in the world right now might have that's mediated by T-cells, you know, there are people that have protection from previous infections, there are people that have protection from various numbers of doses of vaccines and boosters and so on. We don't have a huge amount of information about the exact T-cell responses from vaccines during the initial trials because that wasn't gathered at the time. But what what can we know about the ways that infection or vaccines might might mediate T-cell responses? You know, are there studies that can be done to find that information out? So we do have a good sense of which T-cells are being elicited, what sequences they're recognizing on the spike protein. We also know that, you know, with a natural infection or with a full virus vaccine of some sort, that they will sometimes recognize other viral proteins as well. And, you know, we've seen correlations between levels of T-cell response and to some extent protection against severe disease in animal models and, and and to some limited extent, I think, you know, also in, in the clinic, um, in people, we just don't have a hard and fast number. You know, we can't say, oh, you have this degree of T-cell response, therefore you're this degree of protected in quite the same way that we could with antibodies. You mentioned that some of the T-cell researchers you've spoken to feel like T-cells are often left off the list a little bit. Is there a kind of push from the researchers you're speaking to to try to raise the profile of T-cells where antibodies stumble, T-cells don't? I mean, there was frustration that there wasn't data from those original vaccine trials, but the trials were so big. I think it was also a recognition that it just, it wouldn't have been practical. And unfortunately, to really get a correlate of infection, you need a lot of data. So um, you need a big trial like that. And, you know, we're not sure really how a big trial like that could really be conducted. Again, you're not going to have a naive population anymore and so on. But there was, you know, one person expressed frustration to me that some of the trials, for example, for vaccination in very young children did not include a measure of T-cell responses. That was a much smaller trial, you know, and a lot of it was being done in the United States. And so, you know, his argument was, you know, that trial ended up being extended and they decided to look at another dose in the kids because the antibody response wasn't that strong. And he who has he has a child who's four years old and isn't eligible for vaccination yet. And he said he was just looking at that and thinking, ah, but if you had looked at the T cells, maybe you would have seen a T cell response and you would have been able to say, ah, there there would be some protection potentially. Part of the reason though is because this the assays haven't really been standardized yet, you know? And so regulators, like for example, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, what do they do with that? You know, they don't, they have to have sort of an approved standard test to measure these. And so when you get into things like vaccine approvals and so far, it's it's very difficult to, to get around that. So there are people working on technologies. I think there is at least one assay that's gotten an emergency use authorization. So, you know, it may be moving along, but yeah, there is there is a bit of frustration. Some of the frustration is also just in the degree of panic, you know, that comes about. I remember some of the first studies, you know, before we had vaccines, people were worried about whether or not we would ever have any kind of durable immunity to, to SARS-CoV-2 because they could see in people who had been infected that the antibody levels started to decline. You know, and a lot of immunologists said, well, yes, of course, <laughs> you know, this is often what antibodies do. And this doesn't mean that you're completely defenseless. But then every time a variant comes along, we get very panicky about that. Every time, uh, you know, we see that antibodies are waning after vaccination, after some period of time, we start talking about maybe we need boosters and so on. And they just they kind of want to say, hey, it's not that you're not looking at the full picture. In that. Absolutely. Do you think that we will see T cells being more regularly talked about as variants come forward, you know, as antibodies potentially continue to stumble? I suspect we would. I think there are two key drivers to that potentially. And one is technology, right? So if, if we, you know, as we become 
better at doing these assays and standardizing them and so on. If, you know, if regulators can get some good data on assays that they could then approve and, and or authorize for use. And that, that would be pivotal, I think. But another thing, too, is that we do see a lot of the shift, particularly in the Omicron wave, moving away from the number of infections and thinking more about the severity of infections, less about the spread, you know, which is not, it's not always good news, right? I mean, there are quite a few people in the population who are still quite vulnerable to COVID and to infection. But that's the direction we seem to be headed in. And that might be, you know, if we continue along that path, then we may be less and less concerned about transmission. And we may be happier with the idea that, you know, we might be infected for a little longer, but as long as we're protected from severe disease, we're okay with that. And then we might think more about T-cells sort of naturally as well. I think we should also add on here that although we have spent time here trying to raise the profile of the T-cell bridesmaid compared to the antibody bride, that doesn't mean that it's not still important to have those antibodies there. And at times antibodies and talk discussions of antibodies are still important because in many ways it is still, you know, their, their game. It's important to talk about them still. Yeah, I mean, we have so many people. I mean, if you think, if you think globally, I mean, we have huge swaths of the population who are still haven't even had one dose of a vaccine. They're still unprotected. And then even in the wealthy countries where we've had, you know, we've been so lucky and we've had the access to vaccines, we have a lot of people who've refused to take them. And we also have, I mean, I often kind of think we don't fully appreciate just how many people are on immune suppressing drugs these days because autoimmune conditions are, are fairly common now, right? And these people will take drugs to suppress their immune system to keep their own body from attacking their own tissue. That does leave them vulnerable to infections. We've got cancer patients who take chemotherapy and that can end up destroying their white blood cells for a time. You know, we've got all sorts of people that we still need to look after. So it's good news that T cells are there and that the vaccines are able to elicit those T cells and that they can very likely help protect us against severe disease and, and death. But it doesn't mean that if you talk to an ICU nurse recently that they're relaxed and happy, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the hospitals have still been full. It's still, a, you know, a serious situation that we need to keep an eye on. Um, but it just, you know, again, points to the fact that for those who can get vaccinated, you know, they really should. Absolutely. Heidi, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to finally fly a flag for T-cells beyond just a footnote at the end of the discussion. Thanks a lot, Noah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.